is A to Z with Mark Zinno, part of Locked On Sports Atlanta, and it starts now. Good afternoon. Welcome to A to Z here on Locked On Sports Atlanta, where today I tell you, I think we're in trouble. Welcome in here on this Monday. Appreciate you guys starting your week with me here on Locked On Sports Atlanta. Give me a follow on Twitter at Mark Zeno. Follow us at Locked On ATL. Keep up with all the great shows on the Locked On Sports Atlanta network. Certainly, again, appreciate you guys starting your Monday with us. we got a big show for you today. Brad Rowland of Locked On Hawks will join us as we recap Game one, look forward to game two here as well. We have some more Falcons draft news to get to, and the Braves will see an old friend coming up later on tonight. But we start with game one of the NBA playoffs to the Atlanta Hawks against the Miami Heat. And uh, guys, I think the Hawks are in trouble. Um, I don't know how anybody else viewed the game. I don't even look at the final score. I didn't even look at the box score. Um, because I know that that's not going to be indicative of sort of the way the series will play out. The Hawks aren't going to get blown out by 20 in every single game. That's not why I think we're in trouble. And I certainly understand that the Hawks were the victim of a situation, right? Remember, they played the final regular season game in Houston. So they were in Houston. Then two days later, they went home to play the Hornets. Two days later, flew to Cleveland to play the Cavaliers. And then two days later, flew and played the Miami Heat. So they flew to three different cities over the course of six days and played three games. This team was exhausted. Um, they were tired, and you could tell it was taking its toll on them physically uh, and emotionally, right? I mean, they played two elimination games. There was some talk going into the game, and I certainly understood it, that maybe because the Hawks had been in playoff mode for two games, they might be a little bit sharper, a little bit more crisp versus a Miami team that had a week off. Uh, and there's that rest versus rust scenario. Uh, and I think that certainly was valid, but Miami didn't show any of that. And the Hawks looked more, more tired than anything else in the game. So I, I, I kind of make sure I understand all that when I put this thing in context. But what makes me feel like the Hawks were in trouble um, is the way things went down in the first half and into the third quarter and how the Hawks were defended by the Miami Heat. Now, Miami, statistically, is right on par with Cleveland. As far as points allowed per game, Miami is number four in the NBA, and Cleveland is number five. The Hawks were able to score on Cleveland. They were not able to score on Miami. The Hawks were able to get Trey Young going in the second half against Cleveland. That did not happen against Miami. The Hawks were able to get other people involved in the offense against Cleveland. That did not happen against Miami. Uh, and that was alarming to me. Now, you could say Miami is well-rested and the Hawks were tired. That's true. But the Hawks were never able to get anything going offensively, not in the beginning of the game, not for a stretch in the second quarter, not towards the end of the first half, not at all in the third quarter. I mean, it just never clicked. Miami's defense is on a whole different level than Cleveland. And that, to me, is a little bit worrisome that they are so good at shutting the Hawks down. I feel like this is a matchup nightmare for Atlanta, so much so that part of me feels like they almost rushed John Collins back due to the Capella injury. I mean, think about this, right? If Capella is not injured, is John Collins playing in this game? 
And I'm not saying that John Collins wasn't ready. I'm not saying that the Hawks forced, forced him. I'm not saying that, that any of those, this isn't anything nefarious. I'm just saying that, again, if John Collins was ready to play, why didn't he play in the elimination game? Like, that's when you need him more than you need him in the game one. So, to me, it is 100%, you know, fair to question if Capella hadn't been injured, would John Collins have been in the game? Because he wasn't exactly effective, right? And there are two things about John Collins not being effective that really kind of worry me. One of them is defensively because you're missing Capella. Um, but the other part is offensively. He scored nine points in 21 minutes off the bench, mind you. Uh, and I wasn't expecting a 20-point a outburst or a 25-point night. Um, but clearly he didn't shoot that much and he's not as comfortable. And the reports are that it's the finger on his shooting hand is the thing that's giving him a lot more trouble than anything else. And so from that standpoint, you know, this is a, uh, this is a situation where, you know, the, the Hawks are needing offensive help for Trey. Like they need somebody who can create more offense. And I've said that about Collins and how important he is to getting Trey going on nights like that. When Miami is keying on Trey, if somebody else is making shots, that's going to divert tension away. And, and nobody else was making shots. And John Collins is the one consistent scorer on this team that puts up 20 on a routine basis that you have to respect and defend. And if he's not 100% healthy, he can't do that. And so if John Collins can't be an effective scorer, where's the scoring coming from? I mean, I mean, I said that they got it from everybody in the game against Charlotte. You know, they got they got multiple contributions in the game against Cleveland. They didn't get any from everybody, and the Hawks got shut down. Um, and, and again, I, I'm fully factoring into the tired context of this whole thing, and I certainly think that that played into the way the game unfolded. And I'm curious to see how the Hawks respond in game two. But Miami's defense is eye-opening. It's like, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're like, you see my eyes like, whoa. You know, like bug out of your head, like these guys are all over the place, kind of uh, kind of defense. And the Miami depth to me, I think, is going to be a problem. You know, in reality, they can still get to seven or eight deep, uh, and it's not going to be an issue. You know, again, I, and and Duncan Robinson had 21 uh or 27 it was in the game. And well, that's certainly not normal. I don't think you're you're going to um you're going to have to worry about him doing that on a routine basis throughout the rest of the series, but Tyler Hurr only had six. And he went three from 11 from the field. Like he was ineffective uh, and they were still able to be in full control the whole time. Uh, so uh, their depth to me is, is a problem. Bam and Abayo didn't have a great game either. And they still found a way to continue to put up points. I mean, PJ Tucker was on fire yesterday from three at some point in time, they're going to have to put a body on him uh, and figure this out. But the Hawks really got no help from anybody. And outside of, of Bogdanovich, you know, off the bench, um, you know, where's the real depth? Okongu is a nice player, but I don't think Okongu is going to be a guy that's going to swing this series in a different direction, right? So if you put Collins back in the starting lineup and Okongu goes to the bench after Bogdanovich, where's the depth for the Hawks? Miami can literally continue to rotate and just wear the Hawks down on the defensive end so much so that they don't score on the offensive end. So I am highly concerned about where the Hawks are and feel like they're headed for a gentleman sweep unless something, I think they'll definitely get one at home unless somehow they can steal a game in game two. Now, full disclosure, again, I am from a betting standpoint, I'm back in the Hawks in game two uh, plus seven and a half, because I don't think that box score is indicative of how competitive the Hawks can be against Miami. 
but I do have concerns about the Hawks defense more than their offense. I think their offense will get right when they get rested. Right. Um, I think their offense will, will, will uh, they don't have to get on a plane. So they'll, they'll have a full day off to do nothing um, and get their bodies recuperated and then still have time to go through a game plan, not play a day game. They're playing a night game on Tuesday. So a, a lot of that's certainly going to help, but I don't know defensively if the Hawks can do anything to slow down Miami's offense. And Miami's offense isn't great, but the Hawks have to find a way to be better on the defensive end. If they're not, and Miami can routinely get above 110, their offense is good enough to hold the Hawks below 110, right? Um, if they get to 115 and hold the Hawks to 110, the Hawks really didn't have a bad scoring night because 120 every night is unrealistic, even though that's what they've been averaging. You get in the one teens, you know, 13, 14, but if the Hawks don't play defense, it's going to be a real problem. It's going to be a real problem. Like I said, I think they get one at home, but uh, Miami's defense is legit. They are the real, real thing. All right, coming up next, uh, Brad Rowland of Locked On Hawks will join us, part of our Locked On Network, and we're going to talk to him and get his thoughts exactly on the future fate of the Atlanta Hawks. Plus, later on in the show, we'll get into the Falcons and an old friend coming back to see the Atlanta Braves. That's next right here on A to Z on Locked On Sports Atlanta, free on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast. search Locked On Sports Atlanta. Welcome back to A to Z here on Locked On Sports Atlanta. As we continue our conversation on the Atlanta Hawks and their game one loss to the Miami Heat in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs. And as I said earlier, I think the Hawks are in trouble. But here to find out if I am right from Locked On Hawks podcast on the Locked On Network is Brad Rowland joining us here on A to Z. Brad, uh, welcome. And well, um, look, it's a... Uh, it's not going to be fun here going forward. Uh, from what I saw in game one, and look, I fully admit, you know, the Hawks were a victim of a situation where they traveled to three cities in the course of six days and played three games, two of them elimination games. They were emotionally and physically spent. I get that. But what I saw from Miami on two fronts really makes me nervous about the Hawks' chances in this series. One, their defense is a whole different level of Cleveland. I know statistically – that Miami finished four in points allowed and Cleveland finished five. But when you watch them play, they are dynamically different defenses. And two, Miami's depth and their offensive scoring from multiple players will create problems for a Hawks defense that isn't very good to begin with. Am I wrong on either account? No, I don't think so. I think that Miami's defense in game one, this is a little bit of picking nits, but I think it was probably the best defensive performance or opposition that the Hawks have seen all year. That's how, that's how good they were. When you factor in playoff intensity and playoff level rotations where there are no bad players playing, all that stuff, Miami can switch, which is the biggest thing about all of this is that the Cavs are good on defense, which, which you just kind of laid out. But Miami can play a, a style that is set up to bother the Hawks. Now, the Hawks will have better offensive games. They're not going to be this bad the entire series. Trey Young's going to get his at some point. He's not going to be this bad. But Miami's defense was built for the playoffs, and it was built to be versatile, and I think we saw that. So, yeah, it was set up in a bad way for the Hawks because of the what you said. They had to travel from Cleveland and play you know, 36 hours later. That was pretty brutal, and that's kind of, the I guess, the payment for being a nine seed is just having to fight uphill like that. But uh, I think all of what you said is true. The Hawks will play better. I think they're not necessarily doomed because of this start. But uh, there were a lot of troubling signs at the same time. Yeah, uh, more on the trouble in a moment. John Collins comes back. And I began to wonder, given how limited he played. And look, 
trade it and play in the fourth quarter. Nate clearly said, look, we're done here. There's no point in pushing anybody any further. I thought maybe with like 10 minutes left, Trey was going to come back in, see if they can cut it to around 10 and give the you know chance that they might be able to, to, to come all the way back. But when he didn't put him in by the eight-minute mark, I said, he's going to rest in the entire fourth quarter. And, and I'm okay with Nate's decision. But John Collins also played sparingly, came off the bench, only played 21 minutes, had nine points. Let me ask you this. If Clint Capella is healthy, is John Collins even playing in this game? Because there's a sense, from me at least, that Collins clearly offensively isn't what he needs to be uh, for the Hawks to be effective. And two, defensively, and maybe it's just, again, the game Miami, but that's a fresh guy, right? He didn't play three games in six days. He's been off since March 11th. So from that standpoint, it's like I didn't see much of him. Clearly, he's not 100%. So I'm beginning to wonder, was he sort of implored or rushed back, in your opinion, because of the Capella injury? Yeah, we'll never know. But certainly, it's curious. Like, the fact that Collins did not play in a must-win elimination game on Friday night in Cleveland and then was playing on Sunday afternoon in Miami – uh, the only thing that changed there is 36 hours and, and Capella going down. So right. I don't know if that means it was unsafe. I'm, I'm not accusing them of being reckless. No, I'm, I'm not saying that either. I don't, yeah. I don't think they did. I, I think Collins was ready to play, but I think you laid it out perfectly. It's like if John Collins can come back, um, you know, 36 hours prior wasn't changing that situation. Yeah, it's just a little bit curious for sure. And I, I think he looked okay. I think they actually uh, – something happened along the way where TNT reported a 10- to 15-minute projection for Collins, and he played almost 22. So I don't know if they just blew through that on accident or if they just thought he was feeling good or whatever. Uh, he seemed to be feeling pretty good after the game. He talked about that on the record. We'll see. I think the big thing is that they need him just as a physical presence. They don't really have that guy without Capella. Akongwu I like a lot. But Collins is, as, as a rim threat, as a even a rebounder and defender, is different than what the Hawks have behind Capella. So I, I know why they tried it. I, I think he'll probably play more in game two, if I had to guess. But he's not himself, and that has to be taken into account as well. Yeah, and I think all those things defensively about what you said are true. But for me, Collins' effect needs to be more profound on offense. I mean, the game one strategy, and again, all things taken into consideration about the Hawks being tired and travel and everything, but they basically locked down on Trey and said, go ahead, I dare anybody else to beat us, right? And this is what leads me to a problem for the Hawks is their depth versus Miami's depth. Like Miami's rotation literally can be nine guys deep, and they don't seem to miss a beat. After you get to bogey for the Hawks, uh, Bogdanovich on the bench, there's not really anybody else, like, you know, of, of threat. And Collins offensively, you know, will draw attention that will make things easier for Trey because he's a legitimate 20-point scorer when he's healthy. And teams have to respect that with him not being 100%. I still feel like they may, the Heat may say in game two, go ahead, John Collins. Let's, let's see how healthy you really are. If you put up 25 against us, we'll readjust for game three, but we're willing to say we're going to let anybody beat us but Trey Young. Oh, sure. That's got to be what Miami does. That's what every, that's what every team's going to do. Until other guys beat them, Trey is going to be forced to not, not be the primary guy. I, of course, against Cleveland, he was able to overcome that and got super hot in the second half, all that stuff. But every single opponent, including Miami, is going to make other people beat them other than Trey. And I think maybe they start Collins in game two if he's able to play more minutes and maybe that sort of unlocks some stuff because he's their best rim threat. Um, maybe that sort of makes it harder to switch on them. He can slip screens and do stuff that Capella can sometimes do. But certainly they don't have a ton of depth in this series without, without Capella. Collins being back does help them, but they have eight guys. I mean, we saw them go to nine in the second half when they played TLC, but they were they were already down by 20 points. So they really have eight guys they trust in this series, and one of them in Collins is limited. 
And offensively, it was a nightmare for everybody. But when Gallinari is your best offensive player in a game, which is what happened in game one, he was the only guy on the team that could really do anything on offense. That's tough because then he kills you on defense. That's the thing about Gallo is that you can't hide him on defense. So um, trying to find a lineup or two even that can play both ends of the floor is a big challenge. Yeah, I mean, look, I at this point, Brad, I kind of feel like a gentleman's sweep is like right in the future. Uh, and I'm not being negative about them, just being realistic, you know, and everybody talks about last year and the run that they made. The difference is last year they were a five seed. They had a much easier opponent in the first round, and they caught a Philadelphia 76ers team in the second round that clearly was flawed, as we know now, looking back on it. Um, that that, And again, I don't want to take anything away from the Hawks doing that, but still, this is a much different animal getting past the number one seed in Miami, who's well-rested and has a star like Jimmy Butler as opposed to the Knicks and, and Julius Randle. So uh, I don't know if I'm just sort of hedging my expectations here, but it doesn't look good. Game one doesn't make me feel good. I'd have to see a completely different effort in game two for me to turn around my sort of feelings that uh, this might be quick and painless. I can, I can see both sides. I think that uh, I'm tempted to kind of not throw out game one, but the margin of defeat does not really no, worry me that much. Agree. It's just that the, there were the signs that we, that we talked about, about especially Miami's defense is a little bit scary in this matchup. And generally, I would say, even as I'm not even the biggest believer in Miami compared to other people, but I think this is also their most difficult opponent in the last two postseasons for the Hawks in particular. We saw Philadelphia's glaring weaknesses. They had to play drop coverage against Trey, all that fun stuff from last year. Miami's defense in particular is the best unit they have seen in the playoffs in two years. And that is a challenge. It's also, like you said, they had to come out of the play and they've had to expend energy. You have Capella out. They have all of these question marks. I think that it would not surprise me at all if they stole game two. This is the team that has a lot of upside when they have it going. But in terms of, you know, already being one down, you got, you got to win four out of six now against Miami, who by all accounts has been better than you this season. I'm not saying that it's a gentleman's sweep. I think they could probably get two maybe in this game, uh, sorry, in this series. But I do believe that they are firmly underdogs at this point. That's not controversial. They were already underdogs coming in, coming in the series. I thought it was a little bit closer than people thought coming in, maybe a little bit less after game one. But just the math of it, having to win four out of six now, just doing that math simply makes it tough. Yeah. Uh, and, and full disclosure, look, I'm backing the Hawks in game two. is plus seven and a half and uh, maybe even plus eight in certain spots. Because, again, I think that was more about a situation. And, and what scares me more about Miami, I know they had defense, but, but still – Brad, my concern is the Hawks defensively against this Miami team. Look, I mean, you know, Tyler Hero didn't even have a good game yesterday. Uh, he was basically ineffective. And, you know, through three quarters, they were still up by 20. And, and so that to me is problematic because of the, 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 the Miami Heat depth. You know, again, you even talk about uh, Duncan Robinson and Vincent. I mean, you know, even Oladipo didn't even have to play. Um, if you, sometimes you forget he's even on that team. But nonetheless – you know, th their depth is much deeper than the Hawks. And I think when it comes to the Hawks' lackluster defense at times, um, that's what scares me. Because if Miami can routinely get to a to 110 in this series, um, their defense is good enough to limit the Hawks to 105, 107 on a regular basis. Yeah, I also like the Hawks, like you said, in game two, especially on, on the number, uh, seven and a half, eight. But certainly we, we sort of overlooked it because of Miami's defense in game one. But the bigger problem for the Hawks all season has been their defense. And I, I don't necessarily have that much fear of Miami's offense in a vacuum, but when you throw in the fact that the Hawks playing without Capella, who is their best defender, by the way, uh, him being out is a huge loss defensively. They had a lot of trouble. They played pretty well in the first like seven or eight minutes. And then there was about a two quarter stretch where the Hawks just could not get stops. They had breakdowns. 
And when you're playing Trey, it's already a, a spot to be attacked. And then you throw Gallo out there too. And that, now, the, now you have two spots to be attacked. And that, and that, that's before you even get to guys like Bogey, who's not a great defender. Herder's just okay. They don't have great defensive personnel. We kind of already know this, but you mentioned it. Hero didn't do that much. Bam didn't do that much on offense in nope. game one. Now, granted, the other side is that Robinson was unconscious and that may not happen again. But I think there are enough things to worry about defensively too, always with this Hawks team that on paper, the offense is supposed to be the strong suit of this Hawks team. That's that's the problem here is that if the offense has trouble, they're in deep trouble. Uh, is, is Trey, I know he has to kind of defend himself and, and buck up, but Trey versus Jimmy Butler seems like a really bad mismatch in a fight. <laughs> uh, just size-wise, you would say. And Jimmy's also got a, a little bit of crazy in him. Uh, yeah, Trey, like I, I was saying this. I said, like, if you listed all the NBA players, you give me the top three I don't want to see in a dark alley. Jimmy Butler is definitely in the top three. That is a mean yeah. SOB. He is not a – yeah, he's a little bit scary. Uh, Trey, to his credit, is never backing down from anything. No, Trey is a no. maniac competitor, and that's what you have to love about him. Like, he does not care, but he's also six inches shorter. So it's, yeah. it's just one of those things. <laughs> Real quick, uh, any other surprises from the game ones uh, that we saw through the NBA playoffs? Anything stand out to you? Uh, I think Minnesota throwing a big punch against Memphis was not not necessarily hugely surprising, but the way they won that game, pretty. I was surprised how was flat surprising. Memphis was. I thought yeah. Memphis had a lot. Like giving up forty one in the first quarter to me was like oh, what? Huh? Yeah, I thought Minnesota was not uh, drawing dead in that series or anything, but the way that they controlled that game from start to finish was impressive. And Anthony Edwards, of course, local guy, has been awesome in the playoffs so far. So that was probably one that stood out to me. And then of course that Boston Brooklyn game was awesome, but we expected that kind of. So we'll see. Yeah, uh, and just from from a betting standpoint, I'll tell you this much: uh, I am beyond curious about the overinflation of the line versus Philadelphia versus Toronto. I think Philadelphia had the most convincing game one win. I mean, look, you can see Miami's a one and eight, right? Like it, it, it yeah. shouldn't surprise anybody that Miami is that much better than the Hawks, even all things considered equal. That said, you know, this was sort of a coin flip series. A lot of people felt like in Toronto might actually win this thing and they go out and win by 20. Now they get 38 from Tyrese Maxey, which is not the norm, but think about this. And here's the, here's, so Miami blows out Atlanta the spread moves a half point to a point. Golden State blows out Denver. The spread stays exactly the same. Toronto blows out, I mean, Philadelphia blows out Toronto and the spread nearly doubles. It goes up two and a half, almost three points. I think it's a massive overinflation in that line. Uh, I'm back in Toronto in game two, just as a heads up. Yeah, I, I don't mind that. I think Toronto's got some injury stuff, which might contribute a little yeah, bit that, to that Scotty spread change. Is, is, yeah. But certainly, uh, you'll see an all-in effort from Toronto, and they that's a resilient team. They're well-coached. They'll probably have some wrinkles to throw at them. And Philadelphia was basically just perfect in game one in a way they won't be again. So we'll, yeah. I, I don't I don't hate that at all. No. He's Brad Rowland of Locked on Hawks. Make sure you check out Locked on Hawks podcast. Follow him at BT Rowland. Uh, always great to talk to you, brother. Thanks for the time. I'm sure we'll do this again. Uh, hopefully, we got a much longer chance to do this again as the uh, – <laughs> Uh, Hawks stay in this postseason gig. So appreciate the time as always, brother. Let's hope we'll do it again. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, all right. Thank you. All right, coming up next, uh, we get into another mock draft for the Falcons and Freddie Freeman. Braves will see him again real soon. That's next right here on Locked On Sports Atlanta. Follow us on Twitter at Locked On ATL. Follow me at Mark Zitto. Free on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast, search Locked On Sports Atlanta. We'll be right back. Welcome back to A to Z here on Locked On Sports Atlanta. Free on YouTube, wherever you search or get your podcast, search for Locked On Sports Atlanta. Follow us on Twitter at Locked On ATL. I'm at Mark Zinno, M-A-R-K-Z-I-N-N-O. Please engage with me on Twitter. Let me know what you think of the show. I'd love to have more discussions with you guys about each of these segments we do each day here on Locked On Sports Atlanta. Of course, check out the entire lineup, Hitting Hard with John Chuckery, ATL Day Ones with Tanitra Batiste and Jarvis Davis, the Braves postcast with Grant McCauley. We just heard from 
uh, Brad Rowland of Locked On Hawks, and of course, Aaron Freeman of Locked On Falcons. Uh, we'll talk to him again before the NFL draft coming up, but our entire team here at Locked On Atlanta, a big part of what we do is you guys. So please, I'd love to hear from you on Twitter at Mark Zeno. Give all the shows a follow as well, and let's keep uh, rolling on here. I just mentioned the Atlanta Falcons, and I looked at two more mock drafts, and you know, it, it, it seems to come down to, for a lot of these folks, pass catcher or pass rusher, right? Like, and, and I, I, I will remind you again, if this is the first time you're hearing me say this for whatever reason, don't put any stock in the mock drafts. I know why people do them, and I click on them all, and I'm curious to see what people think and where they're going to go. It means nothing. Nobody has any real clear insight into it. You can look at 100 of these mock draft things, and, and 95% of them aren't going to find the right pick. Um, it's, it's never that obvious when you're drafting where the Falcons are. If it's one or two, it's a kind of a different conversation. You can narrow it down. But regardless, I saw one today with them taking Garrett Wilson, another one with them taking Trevon Walker. Uh, Trevon Walker would be a steal at eight. I don't think there's any way he falls that far. Uh, there's a lot of accounts that he might be the second or third overall pick. Uh, if somehow he gets to eight, that would be absolutely amazing. But nonetheless, uh, again, I'm not worried about it. But there was an interesting column on the Falcon Hulk about, and, and I let you, even when I was doing the show on regular terrestrial radio, I love the folks at the Falcon Hulk. They're all good people. Uh, Dave Cho's fantastic. Uh, and I always give him a shout out when I can. I, those guys do do yeoman's work um, and, they, and they genuinely love the team. And I love that about them. So, uh, but they talked about Terry Fontenot and building out the rest of this roster because. After the draft, the Falcons will be able to free up some cap money. After June 1st, they, they may be able to free up some cap money uh, and be able to sign some more folks into the month of May and into June. And there still are a lot of notable free agents out there. And I am very curious to see uh, what happens with the rest of this roster. You know, it may go unnoticed, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed, at least optimistically, that it may go unheralded about the job that Terry Fontenot is going to do putting together this roster and how Arthur Smith is going to do coaching up this roster along with Dean Peace and everybody else. Because I think it's uh, it's an easy, lazy idea to just go, well, the Falcons are going to be bad. There's no way around it. And, and that's probably right. It, it's probably accurate. But that said, you, you have to kind of dig a little bit to figure out the quality of these moves and start to look bigger picture beyond 2022 and figure out how some of these moves may play out over the course of the next year plus to really grade the quality of them um, and, and finding a couple of players this year that may help you next year is part of this whole thing. And so I'll keep my fingers crossed optimistically that Terry Fontenot can do that uh, and sign some guys in free agency, whether it's somebody like Akeem Hicks or, you know, maybe another offensive lineman, Eric Flowers, whoever it may be on the cheap, they can get these guys on one year deals and see what happens and sort of see if uh, they can create some sort of relationship where they have a building block for, 2023 and beyond um you know again the only thing i am against is them taking a wide receiver at eight everything else to me is on the table uh i think everything else is valid uh, i'd have a hard time believing that that anybody else would be a bad pick uh, the more i think about it i still lean on going offensive tackle uh, i think you need your bookends i think you need a way to protect the young quarterback whenever you decide to take him and start him because it's coming somewhere uh, and putting the offensive line in place is always a smart move first before you draft the rookie quarterback. Uh, all that said, again, I know that there are needs everywhere else. And oh, by the way, I'll say this much too. I still don't think Grady Jarrett is on the roster uh, come week one. I, I think there's still a trade coming. Uh, and I think Grady really has to weigh out and what they're kind of waiting on. One, I think, you know, with a post-June 1st deal, it, it changes things beneficially for the Falcons. But two, Grady really has to weigh out how much he wants to be in Atlanta, 
because his mom is here. A lot of his charities and foundations are here. He loves it here from a social standpoint, you know, loves the city and the town. He's very comfortable here, whether he wants to be here or he wants to go win because he knows, I think at this point, his career may be over before the Falcons are back in contention for a Super Bowl. Um, And maybe he stays, maybe he wants to stay. Uh, Maybe the Falcons can work out a long-term deal, but my, my hedge would be that he's not on the roster in week one. Um, And and I just don't see it. If they were to get a first round pick for him next year, I'd absolutely do it. I would 100% take a first round pick for Grady Jarrett next year uh, and make it a post-June first move and and try to spread out some of the dead money that they may have for him, uh, which isn't going to be all that much, all things considered when you're paying 45 million dead for your quarterback. Um, Yeah. I, I think they're in a situation where they're still going to likely unload him heading into uh, the start of this season, but time will tell. Um, Speaking of unloading, uh, the Braves uh, moved on from Freddie Freeman, and he is now in Los Angeles, and the Braves will return to L.A. tonight to take on the Dodgers and will greet Freddie Freeman and all of his pettiness and all of his bitterness face-to-face. Yeah, um, I'm curious to see, and for me it's kind of must-see TV, but I'm curious to see the interaction between Freddie and a lot of these guys, I'm sure they'll all shake hands and they'll all hug and they'll be all smiles and everything else. I still think Freddie was a little bit too petty. That rhymes didn't do that on purpose, but I think Freddie was a little bit too petty um, in the way he exited. And, and maybe you could argue he had a right to be, maybe you could argue that he wanted to stay and the Braves didn't offer him enough or didn't do what they needed to do to keep him. Um, and, and I guarantee you fans would say if they would have paid him what he wanted, nobody would have been upset. Nobody would have said it's not worth it. Nobody would have said it's a bad contract because this fan base loved him. Now they hate him weird. Um, but nonetheless, you know, whatever, however it went down for Freddie, uh, he, you could tell he had a little bit of sour grapes about it and that's okay. But uh, I, I do want to see how this whole thing goes down tonight. Wascar I know is going to be on the mound against Clayton Kershaw, who, uh, is still perfect last time I checked um, and hasn't given up a hit yet. So uh should be a tough night for the Braves. So let's see the welcoming it. And I think Freddie should be getting his ring um, before the game. That's typically how it's done. I didn't see anything, whether he did or didn't get it. The other big news for the Atlanta Braves is that uh, Ronald Acuna has a date on the calendar, getting ready to come back. He's beginning a, a rehab assignment Tuesday in Gwinnett as they're in Jacksonville. Uh, and he looks like he'll be back in the lineup May 6th. This according to, Brian Snicker, when the Milwaukee Brewers come to town at Truist Park. So uh, they have put a date on the wall for Ronald Acuna to get back. And now that we know a date, we have a definitive date, I can literally just kind of ignore everything. I can ignore what happens at the top of the lineup at this point in time. And oh, by the way, Albies has been great. Uh, And and just wait till Acuna gets back and see how things go. Uh, And he's going to miss a month of the season. That's fine. That's more than enough time for the Braves to recover. They shouldn't be in that big. They're not going to be seven games out by the time Acuna, right? They're not going to be seven games out uh, by the time Acuna gets back. So they should be fine. Um, and once he gets back, I'm not expecting everything to explode all at once, but I am expecting things to normalize and level off. And you'll start to see this offense look a little bit more like we expected it to. And oh, by the way, how the hell did that kid get back so soon? Toward what, in July? Uh, and he's back in May? Man, these athletes are freakish. So uh, excited. Let's must see TV tonight. Let's watch and uh, let's make sure that uh, we, we, we get Acuna back in the lineup sooner rather than later. We're going to get Grant McCauley on this week as well uh, to talk a little bit more about the Braves. So we'll do all that right here on A to Z. I hope you guys have a wonderful Monday uh, and we will be back tomorrow 
to do this all over again right here on A to Z on Locked On Sports Atlanta, free on YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts, search Locked On Sports Atlanta. You guys have a great day. Don't forget to crap anybody. See ya.